This is Justice Matters with Tim Buxton, coming to you from Yugambe country of the Commonberry people of the Gold Coast, Australia. I'm your host, Tim, where my sole aim is to share conversations I get to have with inspiring people doing remarkable work to create a world where we all belong. This podcast is brought to you by the Just Travel Company. Experience wonder and unearth justice and discover the just way to travel today. Visit just-travel.co. Without further ado, here's our guest for this episode of Justice Matters. Well, welcome, Nicole, to the Justice Matters podcast. Uh, Season three is well underway and it is so good to have you with me. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, just as a bit of an introduction to you, um, you're a CEO of, I'm going to have to like make sure I read this out so I get it right because it's a little (laughs) bit of a long title, but it's It's the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics and it's a good thing you got an acronym, NAFC. Uh, which is a 1,400-member organisation. It's um, partners with uh, the CVS and other, um, you know, I think corporations and and partners to make sure that you can provide um, health health care for those that are medically uh, underserved within the USA and provide affordable access to pharmaceutical products and so many other services um, you provide free training and support services i mean you actually grew up from a quite a small organization 75 k a year um turnaround to now over eight million dollars and i think that's just uh you know probably coming out of it from what from what i read your own personal journey which is where i'd like to start you know what what made you kind of enter into uh, this work with NAFC and um, obviously it takes someone with incredible passion. It takes someone with incredible, I think, personal experience to kind of bring such an incredible transformation to this much-needed organisation. Nicole, thank you for joining me. Please, please, please tell me, how did you do this? How did you bring (laughs) such transformation to an organisation and and and? maybe the story behind your personal journey there. Sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. So I uh, graduated from college. I came to Washington, D.C. from a very small town in Connecticut. And I knew all my whole life I wanted to be near politics in some sort of way. Um, And I did a very good job of making rich people richer. I was excellent at that. Um, Working from really big associations that did home building and horse breeding. And then one day I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer. I was 33 years old and I got the news. It was Valentine's day all on the same day. Everything happened. I broke up with my boyfriend, got diagnosed with cancer and then said to my family, um, what do people who don't have insurance do when they get something like this? I had really great insurance. Um, but I'll be honest, during my journey, I had to clear out my 401k to pay for all of my, um, treatments. And then my, uh, insurance only covered so much of, of my treatments. And so my parents are both teachers. And so their answer to everything is we'll do some research and, and learn about it, um, in a typical teacher fashion. So I found that there was this very loosely organized group of free clinics across the United States of America. 
Um, and, and these were clinics that were um, in communities taking care of the uninsured here in our in our country. Um, and they were making sure that people had access to health care. Um, this was before the Affordable Care Act passed. Um, mm. And I said to my parents, I think this might be what I need to do, but they're not even looking for someone, you know, they're, they're just loosely organized. Um, fast forward about six months and there was a little classified advertisement that said, um, a, a coalition is looking for someone to lead them. So I called and don't you know, it was the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics um, and went through the process. And by then I had lost my hair. I had gone through treatment. I had cleaned out a 401k. Um, I knew that I didn't want to do the job that I was doing anymore. I wasn't put here to do that. I was always taught I was taught, you know, put here to make the world a little better than I found it. And um, we started and then from 2007 to nine, I was all by myself just finding all of these clinics across the United States, all these communities, I should say in a better way of putting it, that started yeah. taking care of each other. Um, and these, and we started just growing and talking about how we could be stronger together. And so we went from $75,000 and I learned how to um, fire consultants and hire better people. And I learned how to do marketing, which Look, I'm only really good at one thing, which is talking. So I'm glad I'm on a podcast. I'm, I can't do math. <laughs> I'm not good at anything else. And then um, now we've grown through um, just a considerable effort of the people on the ground in our country to not let politics define how people get access to healthcare. And it's been the best part of my journey growing with these clinics to go from 75 to 1400. And um, now not to have to worry about payroll. That was the, in the beginning was worrying about how I was going to pay myself. But when I brought on a team and that was just done through learning how to capture um, people's stories. Um, once everyone realizes that our health is the first thing we take for granted, if you're healthy, you jump up in the morning, you're going on your day and you're not thinking about it. As soon as someone in your life gets sick or you get sick yourself, that becomes your number one priority. And so I, you know, talking about the fact that the people here in our country that are uninsured are working and they are the service people that got us through COVID, the people delivering yeah. groceries and they all need help. So that's how it started through my own personal journey and then feeling that a voice needed to be given. And I got a big mouth, so I decided it was a good fit. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Nicole, a big mouth, incredible heart. Um, <laughs> I I want to go to so many places that you've touched on there. I, I think it's very, I mean, with it, it's very poignant today that it is uh, to date this podcast of our recording because it won't be released today. Is It is November 8th, which is... Uh, the midterm elections are happening today. People are in-person voting. And, you know, I was just listening to a few of the uh, advertisements on a, on a political podcast I listened to. And uh, when you when you hear someone like Kamala Harris, who is obviously, um, you know, campaigning for the Democratic um, um, Party, talking about people having to choose between food um and can they afford to pay medicine one that just seems so um crazy for me here in australia where we have a medical healthcare system which is you know uh, an incredible safety net to 
people that are, are on the poverty line, below the poverty line, or or maybe just facing it, like you said, a health crisis that that they can't afford. We have an incredible um, medical service, um, and. Tell me, why is it such a big issue, particularly in the United States, which is where you are? Because you mentioned things like 401k. So for my Aussie listeners, that means <laughs> your, your retirement fund. So exactly. our superannuation, what you're going to rely on when, you, when, when you, you're no longer working or able to provide an income for yourself. What, why is it such a big issue? Why is it such major politics? Because really health shouldn't really be political. Health should be, you know, justice matters, should be a human right, you know, Absolutely. healthcare, education, um, basic services that our government supplies. It's a long-winded question I've asked you, but tell me why on a day like today uh, it is such a, a issue that's at the forefront of a country, a wealthy country like the U.S., I think there's a couple reasons. I think that's a great question. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit before when we were visiting before we started recording. And it's always so surprising to me um, that on a day like this, that someone all the way in Australia would really know what's happening in our country. I would tell you that in America, I doubt we know what's going on in Australia on a da daily basis. And so one, that, that should give you a hint um, a little bit about where we are. Um, we're a nation that um, looks very inward. Um, as you can see. And also, I'd say today, there's a couple of reasons. One, because we have a healthcare system in our country that is based on um, purchasing health insurance. Either your employer purchases it for you, or the government has programs that are either Medicare, that's for anyone who's 65 and older, you can get healthcare through the government, or Medicaid, and that's if you live below a poverty level, um, and you can get that yourself. But through the government as well. So one, we're built on a system that's half privatized and half government run already. It's something we don't like to really talk about in our country, but if we're really looking at it, um, and even on top of that, my husband worked for the federal government before he okay. retired. So I have now the best health insurance in this country because my husband worked for the government for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm, I have access to that. So the government negotiates insurance plans for all of their employees, which they're a huge employer. Then we have individual marketplaces where just everyone can go and buy insurance themselves. And then we have these programs that are defined by the government. On top of all of that, we have what's called um, political action committees here in our country, where um, big companies can donate money to political parties. Um, so when you're thinking about the pharmaceutical companies, they all have a stake in what happens with their drugs and their medicine. Insurance companies all have a stake in how they have more um, patients. The government has negotiated rates for medicine, um, which is called a 340B program that's supposed to help the poorest of the poor, but yet, our clinics are not part of that program. So as you can see, I've just taken what, when you go from healthcare should be a human right, which is where we believe, um, but you add in all of these different components, it may start looking like you're braiding someone's hair and then all of a sudden you get a massive knot of yarn because everything's connected in and out. So politicians are looking for how they're gonna get elected. So they listen to their voters. In our country, since the Affordable Care Act passed, under President Obama, um, it's become even more political. And I, and I have lots of opinions on um, uh, what happens with systemic racism and why that may be an issue in our country that we can get into at another point in time. But 
We're a country that has everything mixed together, plus politicians wanting to be elected, plus people giving money to their campaigns. We as the electorate get a little forgotten. I mean, it's just... When you when you explain it like that and how complicated something that should be so simple has become, yes. it it kind of does infuriate you. Now you mentioned you know when when you talked about um, pharmaceuticals for example and the negotiation powers with even the prices of that. I I, re- I remember recently hearing about is it Mark Cuban who's sudden who's recently come out with a new business venture which is to provide the lowest prices of, of I guess, the most neat, sought after yes. pharmaceutical, sometimes very difficult to find um, pharmaceutical products af- affordable for people. And I've seen people, you know, that that's such a, you know, that that industry would bring in such a one of, you know, the greatest entrepreneurs and one of, and one of the greatest entrepreneurs America has produced at this current time. Why is it such a, why has it become so such a money kind of making industry uh, aside from just the politics of it all? Or is it just all, like you said, all, all, all interconnected? I think it's both. One, I think there's no question that everything's interconnected. And then two, I mean, we're, we're, we, we're based on capitalism here in, in this country. So I think that is something that truly drives prices. And then three, if you listen to the pharmaceutical reps and their side of things, which I've, I've had the benefit of sitting and testifying before our Congress on issues like this, right next to a pharma rep and then right next to someone who says this is ridiculous how um, fascinating that it, it is a um again in the middle of these two people being stuck as the person saying wait there's 29 million people in this country that are still uninsured that still are making that choice between getting medicine or food on the table um i'd say that you know if we saw what happened with covid um and we look at that as a benchmark we saw yeah. that those pharmaceutical companies rushed and found ways to get a, a vaccine Solution. to the market. Yeah. They, they did. That costs money. Um, they have people that they employ. They have to have research and development. We had to go through um, here in our country. Um, we had to go through what's called the, the Food and Drug Administration because they had to decide that it was a, a legal, fair, good um, vaccine. So it's understandable that the research and development, the testing, all of those things cost money. But I think where we have a challenge is that they um, pharmaceuticals are also allowed to buy advertisements on TV talking about their, their medicine. And I think that's where it gets a little convoluted and becomes more of a moneymaker. When you yeah. can see that you can run ads to tell people to go talk to their doctor about the drug that they may not know, it starts for me, it makes me nervous about people who may not understand health literacy wise, what that drug may do for them. But it also becomes that marketing and advertising line on the federal, on the farm side. Marketing, you know, (laughs) obviously the the opportunity to make money and profit and windfall and and then appease shareholders and then that never ending cycle that sometimes, you know, if if for all the benefits capitalism brings, there's there's the pitfalls of of where it leads to and and maybe greed, which can can kind of be such a powerful driving force. What shocks me though, and this is is this is where of course it costs money. I I I mean it it, there's no doubt it's gonna cost money. 
education costs money. There's no doubt, you know, to provide quality education and teachers should be some of the most highest paid individuals on this planet. My wife's an education assistant that, that works with kids with difficulty learning, uh, di- learning difficulty, sorry. And, you know, she comes home exhausted, but so, so fulfilled because she's working with kids that, that just don't fit into the traditional education system and helping them go through that process. And, um, Obviously, shout out, proud, proud husband here. You but should be. <laughs> it, it costs it costs money to provide these services, but we recognise these are like this is what we do for our for, for society for our to to build it to be, be healthy individuals. You know, to to grow, to learn, to be healthy. Why do we prioritise spending on nuclear warheads and on again? It's getting political, but but. You know, uh, there's so many other things that that we we actually fund and governments fund and provide services for. Why why would health, like you said, the number one thing that comes to mind, be so relegated down the line and at, you know um, and and you seeing um, as the people that you do? And I love to talk more about what the great solutions that that NAFC provides. Yeah. <laughs> um, why is why why does it not get the funding it needs and should need? Sure, I, I you know I think that that's the question. Since two thousand and seven, I've been asking myself and members of Congress. I think um, and pharmaceutical companies. And let me say, I'd say that in the challenges that exist in our uh, system here in our country, one of the things that I'm lucky to do is work with people who have just decided not to wait. They've decided to build up in their communities. And I think that's just as important as what's going on. And and because I think you have two ways of doing this, right? Um, You can just stop and um, bemoan the system that we're part of, or you can make changes and hope that people will follow you. And I get to work with 120,000 people in our workforce that have just said, well, we saw that way. Now we have to do something different. And with that has come some pretty amazing um, growth opportunities. One, I'd say we're uh, the free and charitable clinics are America's best kept healthcare secret. Not that we want to be, but we are. Um, sure. But it has um, forced you know, pharmaceutical companies and pharmacy companies and insurers and politicians to come to the table and talk to me to find those private public partnerships that we can develop to help take care of the uninsured in our country. So I think it's become, again, I think it's just become uh, financially feasible for all of these different play- players to succeed. I think that when the Affordable Care Act was passed, it originally said that everyone was expanding Medicaid, but then the Supreme Court said that states didn't have to do that. And that caused a two-tier system. And I also think it comes down to, in America, there's just a basic conversation about, do more powers go to the federal government, the big government, or does more power, do more powers go to the state? And then depending on you know, who you are and what spectrum you fall on will depend on whether you believe in a nationalized healthcare system or a state-by-state solution. That's the easiest way to break it down in our country, I think. Right, which obviously we can see even more and more over the years. There's, there's, you know, def- there's a lot of challenges within state-to-state kind of politics as well. Absolutely. Um, and 
Oh, I guess the I guess part of my question was filled with some uh, exasperation only because I've personally experienced this. Right? I've lived in the U.S. and I um, I remember the for, I, I remember moving to the U.S. This is a story that just comes to mind, and I broke my nose, and I just moved there. I didn't have healthcare. I uh, I I was like, you know, had to go to, to the emergency room. Had no idea that what kind of costs I'd be. Right. insuring um, because my healthcare hadn't started yet. I had to be like I was employed, but it hadn't kind of kicked in quite yeah. yet. Again, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, went through, had had a surgery scheduled. No one explained really anything to me, the process, what that would cost. It's like going to the mechanic, right, and they fix your car <laughs> and tell you how much it's going to cost after. You're like, well, if I'd known, you know, that. <laughs> it's true. It was going to cost me $30,000 to put a new engine in my car. I, I wouldn't have done it. No, no, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, exa- I'm exaggerating there. But um, these, this is like a personal experience for me. Luckily, I had advocates in my corner that helped me navigate through that and avoid, you know, a real terrible situation. But we've had to choose between actually getting our kids fillings in, uh, at the dentist and putting that off basic dental care because we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford to pay um, what it was going to cost. Um, and again, um, I want to talk about the people that you provide incredible services to and and the incredible work that you do because that's, I think, what is where, like you said, this is the inspiring stuff about finding solutions for people that um, are underserved, that are desperately needed. Like. What is it that um, you're seeing happening through your work in providing for people? It could have been, you know, someone like me who had no idea what they were getting into, or or a single mum out there who didn't have the doesn't have the has to choose between whether she's going to take care of her her kids' medication or her own, um, and you know, put food on the table. Tell me about the, the people you serve and the ways you're having an impact. Well, I think that the first, your story is probably one of the most, um, I'm very sorry that happened to you. And it's going to sound odd that I'm going to call it wonderful. Um, but it's a perfect yeah. example of the story of the patients that we serve is that people assume if you come here to this country or if you start a new job, your insurance starts right away. And there's a waiting period, 30, 60 or 90 days, depending on what your employer paid for. And so we have people who have jobs and their insurance just didn't kick in yet. We have people, especially Can I just now interrupt I- you for a second? Because a lot of people don't realize a lot of people's medical insurance, health insurance is tied to their job. So if you don't have a job, yes, which is a, is, which is a terrible circumstance you could find yourself in, not having income, you also means you don't have any insurance. It's like a double whammy. So continue as, as you were Well, that's a perfect lead-in for me because, you know, prior to COVID um, here in this country, I think there was this, it was almost taboo. You didn't talk about if you didn't have insurance. It, it wasn't, um, it was almost like a, a keep a hidden secret. And then all of a sudden COVID came and happened and a lot of people no longer had health insurance because their employer who gave them their health insurance now shut their doors or they didn't continue it on top of anyone in our service industry. So waiters, waitresses, grocery clerks, Uber drivers, um, they don't have insurance either. So when I talk about people who are um, 
uninsured or underinsured in our country. It could be for multitude of reasons. Yeah. It, it, you just, I mean, and COVID is the best example of one day you have a job and the next day you don't. Um, and so therefore one day you have insurance and the next day you don't. Um, so some of the stories that I think that are the most telling and if you asked anyone that works with me on my team, we all have our own individual, that one moment that sticks out in your in your life. And so mine is that we were in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and we held a one-day clinic um, at that point in time in New Orleans after a massive hurricane happened. Um, we were there four years later. Um, we were there immediately, and then we went back four years later. There still wow. was no emergency room built. There still was no place for people to go to the, the, that was close, that was on a bus line, that was even in a driving range for many of the patients that utilized the bus. And the majority of the patients that, that were left out were in the wards that are, cause that's what they're called. Neighborhoods in New Orleans are called wards. Um, not the oh, best name, okay. but that's what they're called. Um, they were in, um, like the wards that were predominantly black or people of color. Um, and so all, automatically you saw a, a, a two-tiered system. We held a one-day healthcare clinic to get patients connected to doctors, to get them connected to our, our clinic. So the, a person could come and they could um, talk to us and they would be seen by a doctor. They would get all of their work done and then they would have an appointment when they left to go to the doctor the next day. And we would help them whether or not we would help to see if they were eligible because in our country, you have to sign up and then a government official decides if you're eligible for Medicaid, um, eligible for that system, or if you had insurance or if it would be just at one of our clinics. And there was a man who came in and he wanted to see the, he said, I wanted to see the lady that was on TV and that was me. And at that, when I tell you that he um, invented words that I had never heard, swear words, um, bad words, because he was so frustrated. And at this point in time, we have a thousand patients that are here and about a thousand volunteers. So 2000 people. And um, I, I took me a little while to figure out what was going on. But I had built a system where he couldn't read the papers that were in front of him. And so he was so mm -hmm. upset because we had put up a barrier and we didn't think we had, but we had. So we on, on a dime switched the whole entire system so he could get the care that he needed. When he walked out, he handed me his backpack and he said, um, if you didn't help me today, that's what I'm doing. But I need I, that's what I was going to do. But I need you to take it far away from me. And so I waited until he left and went into um, back room oh, with God. the security guards. And there was a gun, a knife, Please, no. 14 pill bottles and two bottles of Jack Daniels. Um, that's how desperate this man was. I am thrilled to say that he is here with us. He volunteers at a local clinic oh and he God. credits it to that day um, for him. We had a little girl who she was failing in school and um, my coworker was talking to her mom and her mom said, I don't know what's going on. We can't afford anything. I'm, I'm really worried that it's her. There's something wrong. Her dad has diabetes. And we found out that all she needed was a pair of glasses. And when the girl put on the glasses, she said to my coworker, is this what the world looks like? I had no idea. And those are just two of the most heart-wrenching stories. If you think about that man just needed someone to talk to him and help him 
and, and think about, again, as we look at Justice Matters, he didn't know how to read. A system didn't help him with the reading. He couldn't get a job because he was not feeling well. We got him connected. He can now read. He now has a job. He now works with um, us on a daily basis. That little girl mm. now is a senior in high school. Wow. And she is thrilled. She had LASIK eye surgery because she figured out how to get it paid for. And it's just the ability of we could get rid of politics and rid of the cost and we could just focus on the people and we could have such a better society. Um, yeah. we, we not just more productive, um, people who are happier, people who are healthier, who then make a change in the next person's life and the next person's life. Um, yeah. and I get to see that all of the time. Um, and, and that's, you know what? I get to see the best and worst of America. I'm lucky in my job. Yeah. I get to see the worst in the fact, and I say this all the time about the, the, the racism and the, the, just capitalism in the political system, but I get to see the best. I get to see people who are giving back to their communities and doctors who are working all night in and nurses in emergency rooms and coming to our clinics the next day to help people. And, and we get to see people grow and families be together. So um, it's hard, but it's also really worth it. This episode is brought to you by the Just Travel Company your socially responsible travel concierge. Just Travel is the best kept secret in culturally immersive and justice-oriented adventures. Allow Just Travel to take the hassle out of your next trip and experience wonder and unearth justice. Discover the just way to travel today. Simply head on over to just-travel.co to learn more and book your next adventure. Like our flagship Israel Istanbul trip, launching out in mid-July 2023. It, it sounds like you could list so many stories. You've picked two out of a thousand that you yes. could recite right off. And um, it, it's, it also sounds in a peculiar way to me. I, I used to work at a, a really large church in New York City and we would do trips all around the world to like mm-hmm. – countries and we did medical trips we called them on-call trips we'd have volunteers doctors and nurses that would go with us to provide free medical care to in poor neighborhoods and it sounds like sadly in a way that is almost like and what's happened in new orleans for example the, the the emergency care and support my wife actually went down and provided you know one of the relief teams down there she actually met george bush on mm-hmm. on oh, wow. on when he was visiting uh <laughs> you know post but the sad thing is though like you said the sad thing the good thing at the same time is that is it, it, those kinds of conditions are still in communities and neighborhoods um, you and I kind of want to do a bit of a right turn to to that to that topic of racism. Why sure. why is it that it's particularly in certain neighborhoods or certain communities that this is so prevalent? Uh, is there is there a way that the system? When I think of politics and leadership, I think the main job you might have a better explanation of what their job is. But when I look at it, their main job should be to remove obstacles out of people's way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just like you provided, you saw a man with a barrier to how does he get basic care? Well, your job was like, well, if I'm, if, if I'm not here to remove the barrier to Mm -hmm. that's preventing him from getting care, 
what are the barriers in society, particularly as, it, as, it, as some of the systemic barriers to do with racism, and how 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 can we remove those? Um, in particular, in your area of healthcare, which is again such a, a, a significant, important human right. Sure, I think there's a couple of different things, and one, um, you know, for for your listeners to understand, I am a white woman uh, as we're we're talking about this conversation, and so the first thing that we had to do at the NAFC was uh, change the way our board of directors looks. So as a nonprofit in the United States of America, you have to have a board of directors that um, will keep me um, to make sure that I'm not doing anything I shouldn't do. And we took a hard look at our board of directors and realized that um, they were all white. And so the first issue that we had to address five years ago, I'd say really, really address it, was take a hard look at ourselves and to look at each of us individually and then look at ourselves um, externally and elevate Black, um, Indigenous people of color to leadership positions and learn from those those people who have a lived experience that I have never had um, or that my other board of directors have never had. Um, so that was the first thing that we had to do. A second, I think we had we recognize in our our I think in our country, it's pretty well known that there are um, politics where you are elected from is based on your district. And there's a thing called redlining in America, which mm -hmm. people took an actual in the old days, red marker, pen, pencil, and would say this population, either they were affluent or they were a certain um, ethnic race or they were all men because for a long time women didn't vote in this in this country mm. um and we didn't consider black people whole people um in this country and so but we've always been electing people so if we look at that um many politicians drew where they knew they would get elected um and how they would get elected in our country and that still exists today um whether that's called gerrymandering or redlining um but what that has done is and and I think we have to be and I've, I've, I am by far not the expert on this, but this is what I have learned from, uh, from some amazing, even on TikTok, you can find some amazing creators, um, that will educate you on. It's no longer yesterday. I was listening to someone talk about a food desert. I don't know if you have those in Australia, mm. but we have food deserts. Um, what that is where primarily people who are black, indigenous and people of color live that do not have access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, grocery stores do not go what? into that community. They don't go into that place. There may be more McDonald's or there may be more Taco Bells, um, fast food restaurants. And I was listening to um, a creator explain yesterday that we should no longer call that um, a food desert. It's really food apartheid. And there's a choice because mm. companies are making choices not to go into those neighborhoods. And I think that that's what we're finding in healthcare as well. Um, places where people place hospitals are where people can pay their bills. Um, people where they are um, getting access to healthcare, for example, um, we built a whole system that is built here when the CDC came out with COVID guidelines, um, my office had to rewrite them because they were written for people who might have a really high educational level. But the majority of our patients read on a fourth to eighth grade reading level. And so I think those are the issues that when you talk about why does this happen in our country, we have to acknowledge that our country was 
based on whiteness and systems that will allow whiteness to continue. And um, we, even during COVID, we had to shift our delivery model, but we did to make sure that our patients were seeing someone who looked like them, who spoke their language to understand a brand new vaccination and why they need to get that. Mm. We sent up, we set up clinics at bus stops. Um, we put, people had backpacks that would go to people who are experiencing homelessness and go to them. Um, we have mobile units that travel around the country. Um, and by no means are we a solution. We, we can't be. There's 29 million people in this country that are uninsured. Um, we serve anywhere from two to three million of them annually. Um, but our clinics have an annual operating budget of under $500,000 that they raise all by themselves, but we can take a dollar that is given to one of our clinics and we can turn that into anywhere from 10 to 15 to $20 in services given back to the community, depending on how we leverage those volunteers. So I gave you a that, lot to think about in what's going on in politics in our country and why some, some people don't have access, but that's a very high level of what's going yeah, on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think what, what is, what kind of stands out to me is, is it takes, thankfully we have TikTok, right? Thankfully Absolutely. we have places where we can get up to speed and learn just like it was your personal journey. Like I need to research and learn why are we in this situation in the first place. One of the things I, I think, which I want to really kind of commend you for and, and the work that you're doing is is it takes people who care who who ask the questions why because if we look at somebody that's in a difficult situation i, I have a charity that i started that works with refugees and we and it's called you belong and we provide services to help them integrate here in australia and we're and we're looking to do more work on the front lines as well in in places like turkey and um you know other parts of the world where the refugee crisis is is just at a breaking point um and you know one of the things that it's so important to um to consider is that it's going to take um an army of volunteers to respond to to this um these these needs that come up and when you talk about, you know, leveraging volunteers and the people that come on board, you've got doctors and nurses that after working a shift, like you said, come and serve. Uh, what is it that, that I guess, um, uh, what is it that comes to mind when you think of, of those volunteers that are in your organization that dedicate and give their, their lives to make sure that they can, um, you know, you can continue to operate, which I can imagine the stress it takes, you know, when you've got high operating budgets and staff to staff to, to make sure that there's a budget for, for, to keep employed. Absolutely. How important think- are those volunteers and how important is it, is it in building that community? It's critically important. It, it wouldn't, um, we are, we, we, we say we are volunteer and staff run because most clinics have both. Uh, and as I said before, we're a, a workforce of over 120,000 people with the volunteers and the staff that are coming in there. But the volunteers are the description of, um, compassionate healthcare. If, if you asked me what, what I think, I think that people have chosen to lead with compassion and from compassion, they're making change. 
And I think that that is a big part of what I think about when I think about the volunteers, because if it wasn't for them, if they weren't our volunteers in medicine, we wouldn't have the ability to do the work that we're doing um, from that may be starting a free clinic in a community because we have an entire branch of our organization that can help you start a clinic or we can help you become a volunteers in medicine with us. Um, if it wasn't for people sitting down and having that same thought I had back in 2007 of, well, how can I make this world a little bit better? We would be in a hard off place. And I thank you for what you're doing with your charity because it leads right into the conversation of healthcare is not just about a pill and healthcare is not just about um, going to see a doctor once a year. It's about how do we get access to food? How do we help people who came to our country learn the next steps of where they're supposed to go? How do we have healthier neighborhoods? Do we have walking paths for people to walk on? How is the education system? All of those social determinants of health, all of those external things we're learning matter more to your actual health than almost anything else. Yeah. And so I think our volunteers have really opened our eyes um, to so many things of dental care you talked about here in our country. That's mm -hmm. a completely different service. It, it's not even um, primary care and then mental health care. That's a totally different service. And so that's covered but, you or know, not covered. The, 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 this, the thing is, is it's all interconnected, right? Absolutely. Like your mental health affects your physical health, which affects so many other aspects of, you know, who we are. We're whole, whole persons, right? And I think, I think the challenge is, is, is how do we have more people? Uh, how do we have our politicians that are like our volunteers who actually lead with compassion? You said that, that actually ask again the question, why? Why is this person in this situation in the first place? Because when we ask why, we uncover the systems, we uncover the, 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 the truth we don't often want to confront about the past and why we got to where we got to. Asking why is probably one of the most compassionate things you can, you can even do. I was sitting with my, my son last night, tucking him into bed, and he was telling me about, you know, problems he was having in, in, you know, playing ping pong with his friends at school. And one of them was just getting really upset. And I said, with him and blaming him for stuff. And I said, buddy, maybe you could ask him why he feels mm -hmm. like this. And again, it was just, for me, it was like, wow, that was a good parenting tip. Again, it, it, uh, it just kind of, it doesn't always come like that. I can assure you. Uh, but it was like that question of why is such a powerful question. It's a, it's a question we hate being asked as parents when our kids ask us why, but it's right. such a beautiful lead in as to, Hey, how can we understand someone's plight? And then how can we then do whatever we must do to remove obstacles out of the way so right. that everybody has equal opportunity? Absolutely. It's beautiful. And I think that that's when I look at our volunteers or our, even the staff that have run this, I'd say that the, the other thing that distinguishes them is they ask the why, but they've been perseverant in finding the answer. And they have recognized Ooh, there like is, it, it isn't just for them. I mean, some of these people have been doing this since the 50s and 60s. We have a clinic who just celebrated their 100th anniversary. Come on. So 100 yes. years they've been doing this. And so they, they've persevered for 100 years at, at, because in our country, the answer to healthcare hasn't been met yet. And then they um, 
are, I, I personally don't like the word pivot anymore because I had to say it so much under COVID. But Good it's event. a perfect example here is that if you take a hundred year old clinic, they've had to pivot multiple times in their lifetime. So when you look at a nonprofit, um, there is some really key business things we have to think about too, key performance indicators, what's going on in the market around us, what does our customer need? And then how do we get the resources to help get those answers for our customers who are and unfortunately this, patients? And this is where it all comes down to cooperation, right? Because we can't be pointing the fingers all the time because nope. I think when, what, I, what I see from you as a key pivot was for you to actually partner with the business world, to partner with companies and say, hey, we're all out there trying to ultimately achieve the same goal, right? Provide right. health care for people right. if that's hopefully our main. How do we do that in a way in when you can partner? So the ideas of an entrepreneur requires the ability to be to be to pivot, to 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 have perseverance, resiliency, to to do whatever it takes to actually launch something and get that rocket up into the <laughs> air and into space. It takes a lot of setbacks. And I think I think um, I think, you know, to kind of draw things to a close in a very positive note, because ultimately I have great hope that the, the, as Martin Luther King, right, that the great arc of history bends towards justice, you know, and that we will find solutions because ultimately um, that is what it is to be human, right, is to care for one another. We are, we are, um, um, we are deep down, I believe. I'm, I'm maybe up too optimistic, but we are good. You know, we are deep down good and we know what is good and we do what is good. Uh, one of the things I, I think I really love so much about the way even, you know, even though you're quite a large organisation, but what I hear time and time again you talk about this idea of community. Um, and I think we find the best of our communities in places like schools and in hospitals mm -hmm. and in that's where we see the community come together. There's nothing more than we want to see our children flourish and grow. And so we see parents and community. We were at like a four-hour like award ceremony last night. Who does that? <laughs> Puts themselves through that torture for 10 seconds of fame that your child's going to get. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful, but there's something about I love my kids. And it's the same thing like you're talking about with, with healthcare. You know, there's nothing more important to us than our that our mum, my mum had had um, cancer twice, breast cancer twice, and and had, had had overcame thankfully, and and so, but nothing was more important than to our family than my mum during those those that terrible time of you know of of that she went through. Community, tell me about you know why community is so important in bringing I guess justice into this area. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as we kind of draw to a close. Sure. I think you put it beautifully. So uh, we're a very large organization financially. We're a very small organization staff-wise. There's only four of us um, in my whole national office. And then obviously out on the field, there's more. Um, and you think about that, my, my team, um, my vice president has been with the organization since 2009. We had worked together previously at another job, and that, that started my community with her. We both worked at another job. We both knew that we weren't doing what we were supposed to do. And I said to her, when I build this, will you come? And she never gave up. Took two years before I had enough money to pay her. And then we added another team member, um, and she's been with us 
10 years now um, for the organization. And I think what has happened is when you can build a community of people who have the same goal, which our goal is to we, we're, we're working to build a just society where everyone can be healthy and focus on their well-being. And when you can find that and that's the goal and you can articulate it, community comes and it comes from all different people and all different races and ethnic backgrounds and political affiliations. We have everyone uh, in that sure. comes and volunteers with us and those companies. And I think when you can find a like-minded group of people who are focused on one goal, all of the other noise about politics or other things kind of falls to the wayside if you can bring them back to your guiding principle point. And we've been so lucky to find people who have all want that same guiding principle point. We want to make healthcare a right and not a privilege in our country. And we all may have different ways of how we're going to do that. But this group of people that not many people in Washington, D.C. have a job that their 92-year-old grandmother can be proud of. And I do. I have a job that my grandmother is proud of me. And when she was in the hospital, she asked every single doctor, why aren't you volunteering at the free clinic? And why don't let's get you signed up to do that. And I think that um, to have a community around you, communities make change. Com communities look around and say, what do we need for those around us to build? And without a community, without um, compassion, no change will ever come. And I think I agree with you. I think we are all basically good inside. And mm. I think that when you can find your your group, you're going to feel that you can make this world a better place. And that's just you can get down and you can have the hard days. We do, obviously. Um, we can bite our fingernails, which I will be doing a lot today on this day. But I also know I have a community of people who will stand by me no matter what happens today at the election. And there's peace in that. And I'm, I'm lucky to have that and to build it with other people. That is incredible. I feel like you've just, um, you've just launched into another hour of a podcast <laughs> that we can continue talking. I, I know you've got to get onto your day. I, I feel like I want to have a private consultation with you after this. You know, I, I, I'll be honest, like, uh, our organization is only, um, tech seven, well, six years, um, old now. And it's been, it's been a fight. It's been, it's where, you know, it's not at a, at, it's, you know, I hate to admit on a, on a podcast, it's, it's, it's going through tough times. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of people and individuals and organizations are right now. Um, but to, to hear the way you put it, like, as when we can unite, under that one goal and we can let all the rest of the noise dissipate. I think that's just a perfect way to kind of, I think, kind of close our, our thoughts today as we, as, as we kind of go on our day and hope and, and, and pray for good outcomes for, for I personally, for the vulnerable and the underserved. I think if we prioritize those in our communities and, and we, we, we unite under those premises, we can see incredible, I, I point out with my work with refugees, some of the most brilliant people were refugees. Albert Einstein, for example. I mean, I mean, whether you like Apple or not, uh, Steve right? Jobs was the son of Syrian refugees. And 
when we value people, even though they might not be in a in a in a in the best place and, and their health is they can't afford to take care of them healthy. You, you never know who you might be saving. Absolutely. You never know whose lives you might be impacting. And and I think we can all um, you know, take a leaf out of your book. Nicole, you've been an inspiration, your story, your passion. Um, all the best as you continue to do that work. And I hope we personally get to keep in touch some some way, somehow. I, I definitely want to make sure we stay in touch. But there's ways that our, our guests can learn more about NAFC, especially if you're listening in from the US and you want to volunteer. Can you maybe give a quick shout out how people get involved? How can they give? How can they connect? How can they serve alongside your great work? Oh, thank you so much. And um, I just, I am so excited to be a part of this. If you would like to be one of our volunteers in medicine, you can either donate your time or you can donate financially by visiting nafcclinics.org. And you can find a clinic in your area. You can donate, you can learn about the work we do. You can read some of our research. It's all right there. So it's nafcclinics.org. Oh, it's fantastic. You, I, I was just amazed when I went to your website and saw all the different kinds of ways that you guys are serving. You guys are doing a phenomenal job. Uh, we'll have the show notes up there to make sure that there's all the links to, to all the other social media places they can follow you and, and get in touch. But, Nicole Lamoureux, you've been incredible, incredible uh, guest today, and I'm just so thankful for your time. All the best as you battle it out there in D.C., uh, <laughs> Sending our, our love and prayers your way in in from from the land down under here in Australia to you over there in the US. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for making it to the end of another episode of Justice Matters with Tim Buxton. It is an immense privilege to share these conversations and inspiring people with you. To learn more about how you can get involved or learn more about today's guest, head on over to the show notes or episode description. This podcast was produced by the master himself, Jose Biotto, with just a little bit of help from me. The featured music is the song Turning Over Tables by The Brilliance. Lastly, to my Patreon community out there, thank you so much for your support and generosity. Without you, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to become a Patreon and get exclusive access to behind-the-scenes content, visit patreon.com forward slash justice matters and start your give-what-you-can monthly contribution today and join me and so many others in creating a world where everyone belongs. Until next time, thank you for subscribing and sharing this podcast with your friends. Justice Matters with Tim Buxton acknowledges and pays respect to the past, present and future traditional custodians and elders of this nation, now known as Australia, and the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.